It's good to see you this morning. Those are such important words that we believe. Uh, we just want to give an applause to all of you that came out to the Rise and Shine. This was a, uh, an awesome experience. Uh, I was really impressed by those of you that came out because uh, you didn't exactly know what you were doing. We asked you to come and do this thing, and we were cleaning out alleyways and in between houses and cutting grass, and I could see it on some of your faces like, do we know these people? Is this, what, what are we doing here? And, and we had uh, people come out from the houses and, and they were going, who are you? Are you with the city? What, what, what are you doing here? And again, it was cleaning up alleys and things that, you know, stuff had been there for, I think, generations before Tulsa was even built. Um, we came to a place in the city that has kind of been forgotten about, that uh, the people feel forgotten about. We had an opportunity to encounter them, to make a statement that we are here, we care about you, we care about your environment here. Uh, we connected with some people that have some, invest, some uh, vested interest in this area to be able to do some follow-up. We begin to go door-to-door afterwards, not for any a necessary uh, end other than just to meet them and let them know that we care about them, that somebody hasn't forgot, that we've not forgot about them and found out what their needs are and how do we continue to follow up with that. And so, again, very impressed with you all. You went down and worked very hard to do this and we are not anticipating that all those areas that we cleaned up will be now the most pristine pieces of Tulsa from this point on. Um, but something happened. There were some deposits that were made because you were willing to give of your life, make a sacrifice, uh, and care about those that are in great need. So you need to applaud yourself for that. Uh, thank you so much for those of you that um, stand in the gap there. Um, as Pastor Ed mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, leadership team, we've kind of been together just talking about the new year, and we've been fascinated with the scripture Micah 6.8. And you're going to hear us talk about that. You're going to hear different things that we do will come under the umbrella of this particular scripture. It talks about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before our God. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. That's why we do these kinds of things. That's why we, we uh, try to help make things new in the world. Um, even people that don't really know what's happening around them. And we try to be participants in that. And so you're going to hear us talk about that more and more as the year goes on. Today, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 12, verse 9. However you brought the scripture, some of you have it on your phone or iPad. Um, you've got it on the, uh, some of you use the, you have your literal Bible in your hands this morning. And uh, some of you will look on the screen. Listen to these words. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. 
do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does this challenge anybody? I'm like every other verse here going, oh, um, I'm not sure that I'm really good at this. How are we doing with this kind of loving? Is this how we orient ourselves each day? This shows a kind of humility that we rarely see in our culture right now or see in our society. Instead, we hear things like, I want, or I deserve, or it is my right. And so I I made a list of some of those things that come to mind when we think about, I deserve this, or it is my right to be understood, to understand, to be right, to have my space, to have my time. I deserve to have a perfect life, to be loved exactly the way that I should be or I want to be. Now, if you think you don't struggle with that, think about some birthday that you had that your family just didn't do it right. (laughs) That's never happened to me, but, you know, forget those of you. To be celebrated, to be comfortable, to know what's happening next, to have every day be a good day full of magical moments. To have everyone think well of me, to have stuff, to have the relationships I want, and to be important. Now, the scripture that we read in Romans 9 or 12 9 comes after the beginning of the chapter. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with this section. Romans 12 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Like many first century Jews, Paul saw history divided into two sections. It was the present age and the age to come. So when he's talking here about the pattern of this world, he's talking about the present age. This is the age where People were pushing back against God. There was rebellion against God that led to destruction and ultimately death. And what he's talking about here is this idea of age to come. The age to come is where God is stepping into the world to make all things new, to bring new life to all of his creation, to all of his people. And he believed, Paul believed firmly that the age to come began with Jesus that that's when it started, particularly through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that that was the beginning of this age to come. So Paul is urging us not to let the things, the patterns of this world and the things of this age to affect our thinking, to be the the main framework or the main influence into our thinking, but that there is an age to come where our minds will be renewed according to God's new plan and his new purposes. And we will then figure out how we're to think, how we're to speak, and how we're to act. So Paul is 
is warning us, guard yourself from the screams of the culture and sometimes even the whispers in the ear that say, living according to the present age, living according to the things of this culture is really what's going to make you happy. It's going to what's going to completely fulfill you. It's going to be much easier. We see that influence consistently um, throughout every one of our days where there's messages that, okay, this is what will really make you happy. Don't follow that plan. Follow this plan. And he's, he's, guard, he's saying, guard your hearts. And he's warning us to protect ourselves against that. But to live this new way, to live the way that God has called us to, requires a renewing of our mind. Our mind does not naturally think in that direction. So we have to have our beliefs and we have to have our thoughts renewed in order to live that way. I can't live peaceably with you if I am always thinking you deserve to be punished. You are bad and you should pay for it. I have to have my, not, my mind renewed. And that means all of us as our foundation, we have to go back to what did Christ do for me? And when I reflect on what he has done for me, then my mind can be renewed and I can be offering more grace and more mercy to people around me. Now we have to uh, be clear that this idea of living according to the, the age to come is not to just get the blessings of God. I have a lot of teachings about that, where if you'll just do these things, then you'll receive the blessing of God, or to make sure that I go to heaven when I die. But that is not the, the whole intention of this passage. Paul is just wanting us to know how reality works. He's saying that Jesus didn't warn us, for instance, against lust because he somehow approved and wants to just spoil our fun. He warned us against that because he knows that if that goes unchecked, that it will lead um, to a life where um, we are having a life stolen from us and that it will kill and destroy us ultimately. That the idea of not worrying is not just because worrying is a sin. Don't, don't worry because it's sin, you, you worrying sinner. Um, it's because in the kingdom of God that worry is actually totally fruitless and it is completely unnecessary. And so lust and worry and judgment and anger and retaliation, that none of those lead to a full life, to a life um, in, in, in the kingdom, the new age to come. Um, C.S. Lewis said it this way as only he can say it. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. Now, it doesn't mean living this life is easy. There's a reason why Paul says a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. It takes effort. It takes effort to submit ourselves to God and say, work in and through me. I want to be changed. We think according to the way of this world. Of course we do. We were born in this world. We learned how to think in this world. And so this is a whole different way of thinking. Laying our lives down to me is similar to running. You know, the idea of running is really good today. But tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off, it just is, you know, I'm really tired and I've got a full day. And so if I get up now and run, I'm going to be exhausted. Or even once we get out there and you're, you're ready to hit the road, it's like, oh, it's too hot for me to do this. 
it's too cold for me to do this. Oh my gosh, there's too much wind. I can't run with this wind. Well, there's not enough wind. I'm going to get too hot if I don't have more wind. Or I, I can't run when it's flat all the time. It's hard on my legs. I can't run with these hills. I keep getting windy. I hate it when it's up and down and up and down. We will have a thousand excuses. And that's what we do. It's hard for us to lay our lives down because there's always this little thought in the back of your mind of, yeah, but you really shouldn't do this. But this is the thing that God is calling us to do. Our text started with the verse, love must be sincere. The word sincere here means to be genuine, uh, unhypocritical. The challenge that people have with this is, "But, but what if I don't like the person? What if I don't think they deserve to be treated um, in in a good way? If I'm being commanded to love others and care for them, but I don't feel like it, isn't that being a hypocrite? We are so feelings-oriented in our culture. For Paul, as with the early church, love was more about what you do than what you feel. Love in the early church was about caring for those people in need not about having warm, fuzzy feelings uh, towards people. This is the Christian experience. When we were at Rise and Shine, one of the really unique things that happened that I think stretched our particular team is that we were behind a uh, kind of a quadruplex and we were cleaning up a lot of the back behind their driveway and their yard and the alleyway and, and it hadn't been touched in a long time. And actually, one of the tenants there came out and I think he was kind of inspired by this and he was actually... Um, started to clean up uh, another section of the yard and we were talking with him, kind of got to know him a little bit. And we had to do something with all this stuff. Now we had worked it out with the city where they were coming by the next day to pick up stuff. And, and, uh, but there also were some dumpsters around uh, the area. And he said, well, why don't you just take the stuff from our area and throw it in this dumpster? And so we did. And we pretty much filled up a dumpster. Well, then the owner came by a little bit later and saw that we had filled up the dumpster and called the police on us. Now, I could see the look on the face of our team. It was kind of priceless. Um, the, I, could, I could see this strain, this internal strain. You know, they were thinking in greats. I mean, I knew that that's what they were thinking, but I was so impressed that they didn't say that word. Um, it's like, do you, do you not understand? We're making all of this nice for you. It's not like we're getting paid for this. It's, we, we just, we, we care about you. And and, but our team was awesome in how they began to reorient themselves because their thinking had to be changed. If it was, well, these people don't even appreciate it. They don't deserve this. We would have just dropped it all and, and walked off. But there was a reorientation in their minds of, you know, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't understand. This is too weird for them. They're, they're, they're wondering why this is happening. Sometimes... When you love others and care for others, they won't get it. They'll misunderstand what's happening. You might even get the police called on you. Uh, but it's a, it's a reorientation of our mind about people. And again, that's why our minds have to be renewed um, to be able to do this. We see this in relationships every day. Relationships get stuck where it, and the thinking is, well, you know, you haven't, you haven't, done something for me lately, therefore I'm not going to do something for you. We, 
we talk to families and particularly married couples about learning how to give even when you don't feel like it, that love is an action word. And I think initially they think we're kind of like snake oil salesmen. You know, they, they don't understand how this works because they don't feel these loving feelings. And they come up with all these reasons why the other person hasn't been doing their part. And so therefore, why shouldn't I, um, why, why should I love them? But something fascinating happens when they begin to get a hold of, but God has done so much for me. His love is not based on my performance. I don't earn this. There's an there's a unconditional love that he loves me with. Who am I to not love others, particularly my spouse or my family or close friends? And when they begin to reorient their mind towards how this works, as they begin to love, something interesting happens in them. All of a sudden, their attitude warms up. They begin to actually care for the person, to consider them, to love them, to, to, to see them as an important child of God that I am here to serve. So many times relationships get stuck. It's like, well, I'm not gonna do anything until you do something. And the other person says, well, I'm not gonna do something until you do something. And nobody does anything. But as they begin to give, warmth and closeness begins to happen. It's actually quite a miraculous thing that takes place. Something happens as we do our part. God steps in the middle of that and the responses and the fruit of that that I see is beyond what is actually being done. We see people doing very simple little gestures towards their partner and all of a sudden connection begins to happen and it actually surprises us. It's like, wow, that's more than what we would have ever expected. But that's how the kingdom works. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Back in the old days of grad school, we were taught this theory called the exchange theory. And basically, simplistically, the theory is people do things because they expect somebody else to do something for them. So I don't do anything unless I think I'm going to get some gain from you. Now, back in those days when I was newly married and I had just graduated from ORU, I was appalled It's like, what? People only do something to get something in return? Well, that must be for the world because we're believers. And so we do things in our relationships all the time just because we love our spouse or we love the people around us and we don't expect anything in return. And now many years and decades later, I go, really? Do we? That's how Christ tells us to live. That's what we want to do with our mind renewed. But do we do that? Do we really give to someone without expecting anything in return? Several years ago, I had a couple in for counseling, and it's nobody you would know. And I don't know if I was having a bad day or if I was just really tired or if it was really them. But... um, (laughs) From, from the moment they came in from the waiting room, they were arguing. And so they're walking through my door. Well, you did this. Well, I wouldn't do that. They were just going on and on and on. And they sat down on their couch, and, and uh, they were just going back and forth. And I found myself thinking, be quiet. You're irritating me. I don't want to hear any more of this. But since I know as a counselor that that wasn't very helpful or healing, And it doesn't do a whole lot for building your practice either um, when you say those kind of things. 
I, I just began to say, Holy Spirit, show me what these people need. Help me know what I can do to change this situation and how I can help them. And I felt this nudge to just uh, very quietly say, okay, both of you be quiet for just a minute. You're talking about a lot of different issues. I'm hearing a lot of things go back and forth between the two of you. But you know, I'm really just hearing one thing. No matter what the issue is, I'm hearing you say, well, I would if she will. Or I will if he would. Both of you are going back and forth waiting for the other one to do the right thing for you to respond. And because I knew they were believers and they were leaders in their church, I just said, you know what I'm not hearing? I'm not hearing. I'm going to choose to do this because I'm going to honor you. I'm going to choose to take the first step to make our relationship better. I'm going to lay my life down for you and take responsibility for my stuff, whatever you choose to do. And I'm going to believe that something good is going to come out of that. We sat there for a minute, and one of them looked at me, and they said, we kind of sound like kids, don't we? I will if he will. I'm not going to. But don't all of us have that tendency? As Brent said, don't we all have the tendency to go, why should I do that for you when you didn't do that for me? Especially in our close relationships. Humility is laying our lives down for each other. It's saying, I'm going to choose to do what is right in this situation. I'm going to choose to honor you above me. So the Christian story is about um, preserving, protecting, uplifting, encouraging. Again, that idea of laying down our life. It's not about just waiting for, well, if the Holy Spirit moves on me and I feel just right, then I'll do it. Um, it's about trusting in what he's done for us. Um, so that we might give that to others. Now, we have to choose to live in these kinds of relationships. We have to choose to reorient our thinking that people are not just our personal need meters. Uh, these are not just um, uh, people that, that are there just to, to give to my life. But it requires humility. It requires us to, again, honor others as more important than ourselves. I tell folks every day, I said, if you, if you get people equal with you in value, you're actually pretty amazing because we are just pretty self-centered folks. Um, if you get them equal to you in value, it's pretty amazing. But to consider them as more important, the only way we do that is by having our minds transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the only way that we can really care for others that way is with his power and with his strength enabling us. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. When we think of persecution, we don't really have a very good framework for that in our culture. And I'm glad. I don't really want a good framework for persecution. Um, but we do know what it's like to be misunderstood. Have you ever had somebody really misunderstand you? They just don't get it. It's hard. I hate being misunderstood. We had a situation with some, some friends who really misunderstood us on some issues. And we talked, and we talked, and we prayed, and we prayed, and then we talked some more, and then we prayed some more. And it seemed like the more we talked, the more confused everything got, the more misunderstood that we were, and even villainized that we were. 
And we finally had to agree to just part ways and say, this is what's going to have to happen. It, it was so painful for me. It was really one of the most difficult things of my life. And I, I found myself rehearsing those conversations over and over again. It's like they kept playing around and around in my mind. And it's like, okay, I said this. How did they possibly get that out of it? Or Brent said this. Where did this come from? Maybe I should have said this when they said that. Maybe I should have said this. And it was just consuming me. It was just going around and around and around. And I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, you have to give up the right to be understood. We have to lay that down sometimes. I want everyone to understand me. I want them to agree with me. But sometimes we have to know, even if we're doing things for the right reasons, with the right motives, and we're doing the right things, we will be misunderstood. Jesus was. Why do we think that we're going to be different? And we have to lay down that right, even if people don't approve of us. After I I felt the Lord was speaking that to me, and I went through this, good, I don't have to fight with all of that in my brain anymore. And then I felt this little creeping thing coming in the back of my brain that was like, I wonder why they thought that. I wonder what was going on in their life. Maybe it was something from their childhood, or maybe somebody talked to them. And so I started back in that cycle again. And the Lord said, you have to give up the right to understand Sometimes we're not going to understand why people do the things that they do. Sometimes there's people that are close to us that have really hurt us, and it is not going to make sense to us at all. We have to give up the right to understand and say, Lord, whatever is happening, I am placing it in your hands, and I'm going to do the thing that you called me to do. Whether I'm misunderstood, whether I don't understand people, whether people think bad of me, I'm going to still keep on walking, doing what you've called me to do. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge, it's a very powerful force in our culture. Um, it keeps a lot of things going in the world. Um, people against people and countries against countries. And it, it's a cycle that continues. As a matter of fact, there's a whole genre of movies on revenge it happens to be one of my favorite. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but uh, you know, there's there's probably something in all of us that, from situations where we have been hurt, that if we could get by with it, we would love to seek out some kind of revenge. Probably in these movies, watching these movies, we're kind of vicariously getting back at somebody um, for some kind of hurt that has happened to us. And the little more unnerving part of this is there's probably other people that are having the experience and watching the movies where they're thinking about getting back at us uh, for something that we've done. But this section of scripture is talking about a whole different approach to this. It's a whole mind reversal 
where our thinking flips upside down. It really comes from our earlier chapter in Romans, chapter, chapter five. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the center of the Christian story is the claim that as human evil was at its worst, Christ came and took the full weight of evil and sin upon himself. And because of that, we have the ability and we have the power to lead this new life because of what he has done for us. Revenge keeps evil in circulation because I have to avenge your revenge. And it keeps going back and forth and round and round and it keeps evil going over and over again. But as Brent said, we see it in families, we see it in communities, and we see it in countries. So does that mean we're supposed to do these kind acts for people that have hurt us and that are evil and that aren't repentant? We think what Paul is saying is yes. We are called upon to bless those even if they do wrong, even if they're not sorry, even if there's no possibility of reconciliation with them. We are, we are to continue to do good and to let go of our desire for revenge. We can't hold on to that if we're going to lead the life that God has for us. It's convicting. Um, this also is one of the areas that I think people get confused about the difference between forgiveness and trust. I think there's this um, thinking in our um, spiritual training that if I release um, responsibility, if I forgive, if I release that, then that means that I need to open my arms up and welcome that person immediately back into relationship. I believe forgiveness and trust are very different, and I think it's very important for us to understand that. What we are being talked to here about is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-way street. God can give you the ability, through what we've been talking about, the ability to forgive somebody even if they never change. Matter of fact, I spend a lot of my time with people that have been deeply hurt by others, and they just talk about, I just, I'm waiting on the phone call. I just, I'm hoping that one day they'll get it and they'll understand how they've hurt me and that they'll come, they'll come and they'll say that I'm sorry and that they want to change. And I oftentimes have to say to them, you know, you're going to have to let that go. As a matter of fact, that will probably never happen. And so what do we do? God is saying that we can still stop that cycle of evil and we can, we can, become free in our heart and release um, the offense, even if they don't ever change. Now, this has to be balanced, obviously, with living in a culture where our governing authorities um, have, have proper structure for dealing with people that do hurtful things to other people. It doesn't mean we just sit back and let people traumatize others. There's certain um, accountability for that, but that's kind of for another story other time. But trust is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Trust is a two-way street. 
Trust requires change on the other person's part and change for a long enough period of time until I can feel like, yes, I can now trust them. And there is then the potential for reconciliation, but it requires that change. And that's different than forgiveness. There are gonna be people in your life that God can empower you to forgive where you can be free, where there'll be no bitterness or resentment and they don't have any control in your life anymore that you fully forgive them, but you do not trust them. As a matter of fact, there are some people that you would be a fool to trust them because they are not trustworthy people. And so it's gonna operate at different levels. This whole idea of, of burning coal on their head, you know, when we usually read the end of that, we kind of go, yes. God got him. Um, that's the, you know, that's, um, that's, you know, his, his getting them back. And we think, yeah, that's not what we've talked about this before. That's not what that means. These burning coals represent the, the process of purification in our life. And so there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to convict somebody and for change and purification to happen in their heart. That's not, yes, they're going to burn up. Um, we oftentimes, we so oftentimes want to be the Holy Spirit. We want to step into circumstances and we see people that have done wrong things. And we want to go in and judge them and criticize them and make sure they do it right. All I can say is we're bad Holy Spirits. Um, we don't do a good job with that. And we are in there trying to do that ourselves who can, through condemnation and judgment. I believe the Holy Spirit has to step back and go, you can go ahead with that. Knock yourself out. I can't have anything to do with that. But when we're able to release the person, to forgive them and release and stop the evil, and, and we then step back, that releases the Holy Spirit to be able to go to them. And there's the possibility. Now, God does not force himself on anybody, but there's the possibility for conviction in their heart, for a purification in their mind, for a change of thinking, and for them to begin to do something different. And that then is the possibility for trust to be rebuilt and relationships to be fully restored. God, again, would not tell us to do something if it required change on another person's part because we have absolutely no control over other people. And so that's why he commands us to forgive because he knows how important it is for us to be able to be free so that we can be free regardless of what other people do. That's our responsibility. Even if people never change, it is our responsibility to live and to forgive and to release. Finally, Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Remember those rights that scream or sometimes whisper in our ears? The right to be understood, to understand, to be right, to have my space, to have my time, to have a perfect life, to be loved the way I should be, to be celebrated, to be comfortable, to know what's happening next in my life, to have every day be a good day full of those magical moments, to have everyone think well of me, to have stuff, to have the relationships I want, to be important. Are we willing to trust Christ and his work and what he's called us into to lay those things down and to choose to follow him? Are we willing to go into a discipleship relationship with him where I will lay my life down to do what you have called me to do? One of the false narratives or the false stories of our society is if we're truly a disciple, we give up all the good stuff. We don't get to have as much fun. We don't get to go to all the movies or enjoy the good food or play games or do things with fun people. We have to dress frumpy and wear bad shoes. Um, Okay, maybe you guys didn't think of that one. Um, But you know what? I think it's actually the opposite. As we lay our lives down, as we follow him, we have a deeper joy. We appreciate life more fully. We value the things that are around us, and we can celebrate at a deeper level than people that don't know him. I think as we follow Christ, we have discernment so we can go, is this something that will bring me joy, or is this a counterfeit that's going to lead me off track? And then we can put boundaries in our lives and have discipline so that we can have the fullness of joy, that we can really have the abundant life that he has called us to. Actually, the cost of non-discipleship is much higher. Uh, Dallas Willard said it this way. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated through by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. There was a story about a... uh, um, a captain of a ship is a very proud captain of the ship. He was on the high seas and it was stormy. It was uh, dark at night and, and he was coming head on to another ship and they were on a collision course. The other ship warned him and signaled and said, you need to turn around because um, there's danger ahead. And the captain, again, being a proud captain said, no, I'm not turning around. You need to turn around. And so they spent a little bit more time and and were watching and they were heading at each other. And finally, the other ship again signaled and said, you need to turn around now. And the captain's reaction, because he again was a very proud captain, said, no, I I am Captain Richard Moran and I am captain of the SS Poseidon, a very important ship. A little bit longer, the the first um, warning came again and said, said, you need to turn around now because this is the lighthouse and you're about to hit the rocks. Now, the captain had full freedom to make a choice. He could keep barreling on. He could, he could be proud and do his own thing. But the thing he could not get away from 
was the effect of the rocks, that the rocks were ahead. God gives us that freedom. We have that choice to think we're all that in a bag of chips and be proud and, and to do our own thing and I don't need you, um, but we will have the effect of the rocks. And so it's a choice that we get to make. St. Augustine in closing said, do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. Don't you stand to your feet this morning?